Well, thanks, guys, for the special worship today. We're so excited about uh, singing out with you uh, these Christmas songs that we only get to do once a year, but we, sh- we think about them year-round, don't we? So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 34 together this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this great Gospel. I've entitled this morning's sermon as, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And so we'll be here in uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 again through 34. Let me read the text and then we'll jump into our time here together. John the Apostle writes this about John the Baptist. He says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning of Jesus being the Son of God. Thank you that we can sing about Emmanuel, God with us. And thank you for this text that points us to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And I pray that today, God, you would stir our hearts And you would allow us to revel in these truths that would result in a rejoicing in our hearts and an obedience with our actions as we want to examine and look carefully this morning at the Lamb of God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there's a a story of a tourist who visited a church in Germany some years back and was surprised to see a carved figure of a lamb near the top of the church's tower. He asked why it was there, and he was told that when the church was being built, a workman fell from the high scaffold. His co-workers rushed down, expecting to find him dead. But to their surprise and joy, he was alive and only slightly injured. How did he survive? Well, it just so happens that there was a flock of sheep that was passing beneath the tower at the time, and he landed On top of a lamb. The lamb broke his fall and was crushed to death, but the man was saved. And to commemorate that miraculous escape, someone carved a lamb on the tower at the exact height from which the workman fell. Now, the source of that story is unknown, and whether it is true or simply a legend, it still spells out one fact we need a lamb for our survival. We need a lamb to break our fall. We need a lamb to catch us in our sin and to enable us to have a life of Christ in us, right? You and I have fallen. Romans 3.23 says, for all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news is this morning is that we're going to behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And no matter where you are today in your life, you are a fallen creature, And no matter how you're doing today, you're in need of a lamb who only by his 
life and sacrifice is able to catch your fall, right? Only the lamb can take away your sin. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at this verse, verse 29. We're going to spend most of our time looking at the Lamb of God, and then we're going to look at the other verses as well. But here's how we'll start this morning. I want to give you four statements about the Lamb of God. So if you're taking notes this morning, that's four statements about the Lamb of God that outlined there in your bulletin. Number one is this, Jesus is the Lamb of God. We read that so clearly here in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so before we get to that first blank, let me make sure that the stage is properly set. Last week, we examined verses 19 through 28, where John the Baptist was interrogated by a delegation sent out from the Pharisees to come and ask John who he was. Was he the Messiah? Was he Elijah? Was he the prophet? And John the Baptist gave an emphatic no to each one of those questions. So they asked him, then who are you? And we read in verse 23 here of chapter 1, he gives a simple voice by just quoting Scripture. He's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. John the Baptist said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so why was he baptizing? Because he's preparing Israel for repentance. He's preparing Israel for the Christ who would come. He's announcing to Israel, get ready That which has been prophesied about from the beginning is now here. And they ask him again, why, why, what power or an authority do you have to baptize? And then look at verse 26 and 27. He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so again, he continues to point out, look, the authority comes from Christ. It's not me. I'm just a prophet. But the authority comes from the Word of God, and it comes from the Christ of God, one who stands among you, that you don't even know Him. He's here in our midst, but you don't know Him yet, and I'm not even unworthy to untie His sandal. And this is what has been going on in the life of John the Baptist, but the best we can tell, according to a close examination of the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at this time, Jesus had already been baptized. The Gospel of John does not record the baptism of Christ. It's recorded in the synoptics. And so we believe the baptism had already taken place. And we also believe that this would have been right after Jesus returned from his temptation in the wilderness. So the synoptics again record how Jesus went out into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He overcomes those temptations. He comes back now into civilization. And it's at that moment that we pick up verse 29 where John the Baptist says, Behold! The Lamb of God, as he's approaching in, and he's pointing out that this is the man Jesus, right? This is the Messiah. This is the one that we are to behold. And that word behold means to look at, or to see him, to take notice, to pay special attention to. This is the first time in the Gospel of John where that word behold is used. It's used 29 times. Uh, in the New Testament, the majority of those are found right here in John. And the first time is right here in this verse, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God. The last time the word behold is used in referring to Jesus is also a very famous occasion. It's in John 19, if you just want to look at it. John 19.14 is the last time in the gospel this word behold is used referring to Christ. And it says this, Now it was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour this is Pilate, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So John the Baptist introduces Jesus in the beginning, Behold the Lamb of God. It's Pilate 
who at the end of Jesus' life says to the Jews, Behold your king. And so from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of his life, we are to behold the Lamb. We are to behold the Lamb of God. This isn't just any Lamb. John the Baptist is immediately connecting his listeners with the rich history of the Lamb that we'll see throughout the Old Testament. So I want to take a few moments this morning, if I can, and give you some highlights of why this title, the Lamb of God, would have been so significant for the Jewish listeners. And I think you know some of this, but let's do a little scriptural study if we can this morning. The first reason this is significant is if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, we realize that in Abel's sacrifice, we see the lamb typified. In Abel's sacrifice, we see the lamb typified. Back in Genesis chapter 4, we understand that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the, what? Of the sheep, right? So he had lambs. He was the keeper of the sheep. And Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, which was the fruit of the ground. Verse 4 says, though, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. And so we understand that Abel brought the first lamb that would be sacrificed out of his flock. He brings a lamb and he brings their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And so what we learn from that Genesis 4 account is that very early in the Bible, we see that it is the offering of a lamb that pleases God not the offering of our own work. The main difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice is that Abel's was a sacrifice out of, out of that which God had required. It would require the death of an animal to foretell and to typify the Son of God who would one day come. Cain's sacrifice was more out of the work of the sweat of his brow, and it was condemned by God as not being the right sort of sacrifice. It was like Cain is making a sacrifice in his own making, with his own work, with his own hands, whereas Abel simply brings that which God had created. God had created the lamb, and God wanted that lamb to be sacrificed, and so he gave favor to Abel's sacrifice. And so the very first time we see the lamb in the Bible typified is there in Genesis chapter 4. Next, we learn in Abraham's sacrifice, we see the lamb prophesied. We see the lamb prophesied. You're familiar with Genesis chapter 22 when God told Abraham he was to go and sacrifice his son Isaac and the account reads like this. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife and so they went out together and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I, my son, he said, Behold, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Obviously, Isaac's a pretty smart kid. We think him to be around 12 or 13 at the time. And he's walking to the place of sacrifice, and he's like, Dad, we've got the fire and we've got the wood. Where is the lamb? And the father's answer, Abraham's answer was, God will provide. Right? The next verse, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. And so they went on, both of them, together. This is where we learn about God as Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He provided the lamb at the last moment before Abraham the father was going to slay his son. The angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, hey, don't do it. 
And there was a ram in the thicket. And they took that ram and sacrificed that, that ram on that day. And that was also a prophecy of the coming Son of God who would be crucified. While, while God told Abraham to hold off on killing his son, God the Father did not hold off on killing his son. And so what we learn in the story of Abraham is that it is not even our obedience... Even though Abraham was being fully obedient, it's not his obedience that satisfies the wrath of God. It's only the provision of a lamb that would be supplied by God that could satisfy the wrath of God. And so this is a clear prophecy of that greater lamb that would one day be provided by God to take away the sin of the world. And so we see already here in the first point, in Abel's sacrifice, we see the lamb typified. In Abraham's sacrifice, we see the lamb prophesied. And now the third point here would be in the Passover, we see the lamb slain and the blood applied. The lamb is slain and the blood is applied. Here in Exodus chapter 12, as we read about the first Passover, we understand that God tells Moses uh, to tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of them can eat and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so we understand in that first Passover, a lamb was to be brought. A lamb was to be slain. The blood of the lamb was to be applied on the doorpost and on the top of the doorpost going across. And if the angel of the Lord who came on that very night as the tenth plague was performed on Israel to wipe out the firstborn of every family and every beast of the field, that God would pass over if the blood had been applied onto that house. But for every unbelieving house that had not applied the blood, God's judgment was given and the firstborn son would be struck dead. And so having the covering of the blood of the lamb is a serious thing. It's about life or death. Next, we learn in D, there in your outline, in the guilt offering, we see the sacrifice of the lamb intensified. We see it intensified in Leviticus chapter 14. We read about how on the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an epith of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt 
offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering and in the place of the sanctuary for the guilt offering like the sin offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. And then listen what happens with the blood. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear. And of him who is being cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Now certainly every time you've read that in the Old Testament, you're thinking, what in the world is going on? The the main thing that you want to take from this is this is an intense time where this offering is being brought, this blood is being killed and applied to the person who's being purified. There is certainly an intensity to this blood of the guilt offering to put it on the lobe of the right ear, on the, the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toe of the right foot. And the way some people would read this is they would say this could be symbolizing, sanctifying what you hear. This could be symbolizing sanctification of how you serve. With your hands. This could be symbolizing sanctification of the places where you go. And everything that you hear and everything that you do and everywhere that you go is to be set apart as holy to the Lord. In other words, if your guilt has been taken away by the blood of the guilt sacrifice of this lamb, then you are now prepared to serve the Lord with greater intensity. And isn't that true? Sometimes when we're so guilt ridden of our sin, we're handcuffed to really worship the Lord and serve the Lord like we ought because we're so concerned and feel so guilty about our sin. But when the guilt is taken away, you are now ready for sacrifice. There's great clarity in the calling that God has given to you. And that calling is not only to save you by His grace alone, but to prepare you for work and for service. In our next look at the Lamb, we learn this in Numbers 28, that in the daily offering, we see the sacrifice of the Lamb clarified. Numbers 28, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer me this at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord two male lambs, one year old, without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Well, you may have forgotten because we think about basically the red heifer in Leviticus 16 is what we talk about the day of atonement, which would be shed once, once a year when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. This is different than that. This, this is a clarification that there's also a daily sacrifice that was to be offered as unto the Lord, two lambs, one every morning and one every night. And I believe that's just simply to remind us of our daily need of atonement. While we're only saved by one act of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, we still need to be thinking about atonement every day. There's still a daily reminder that is needed. Daily grace for daily sins. Daily atonement for daily guilt. Daily power for daily struggles. And so every day, God had them kill a lamb in the morning and a lamb at night to just clarify their constant need and dependence on the provision of God in order to have a pure life and to live in a pure way. The next thing that we see is in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we see the lamb personified. The lamb personified. Isaiah 53, 5 through 7, but he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. For He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. We believe that would be fulfilled in the sense of when Jesus, as He's being crucified, just before He's crucified, you remember how He's continued to be questioned and asked and beaten, and most of the time He doesn't respond. In other words, He's not fighting back. He's not arguing to prove His point. He does say a few things at a few moments there to Pilate, but overall, He's willing to go through the sacrifice. The ultimate Lamb that would take away the sin of the world was not, was not an animal. He was a person. He did not have to be forced. He gave up his own life and, and was willing to be sacrificed. The, the ultimate lamb was not created. He was the agent of creation going to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter. It's an amazing, rich history that Israel has thinking about the lamb sacrifice. And this would have been in the back of the minds of all of the Jewish people listening to John the Baptist, where we move now into our text for today, when they heard him say, and this is your next blank here, in the ministry of John the Baptist, we see the lamb identified. He is now clearly identified that all of the prophecies, all of the foreshadowing, all of the types of all of the lambs that had ever been sacrificed point to this one lamb. And that's why on the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look at this lamb. Take notice of this lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now remember, John had just written in verse 26, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. So the Jews didn't know who Jesus was. They weren't aware that this was the Messiah. This is the point in time where a human being, John the Baptist, points at Christ and says, this is the Lamb. And at this time, all of the waiting and all of the preparation for the ultimate Lamb is finally over. The Lamb of God is now here. Notice the progression of what we've looked at so far of the scope of the sacrifice. For Abel, it was a sacrifice for a single individual. In the Passover, it was a sacrifice for each household. In Leviticus, it was a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. But here, in John 1.29, we see the Lamb of God is a sacrifice for the whole world. Listen to what J.C. Ryle writes on this passage. Quote, this passage contains a verse which ought not be printed, or excuse me, which ought be printed in great letters, in the memory of every reader of the Bible. All of the stars in the heaven are bright and beautiful, and yet one star exceedeth another star in glory. So all the texts of Scripture are inspired and profitable, and yet some texts are richer than others. Of such texts, the first verse before us is preeminently one. Never was there a fuller testimony born to Christ upon earth than that which is here born by John the Baptist. When he says, Behold the Lamb of God, no clearer truth had ever been spoken as he points and brings the attention in to this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. The idea of the Lamb does not stop 
with this day when John the Baptist made this proclamation. In fact, the next blank there in your outline says, in the new covenant, we see it is through the blood of the Lamb that we are purified. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. We could do well to remember Hebrews 10, 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so we have to realize it was never about the blood of the bulls and goats. It was never about the blood of the lamb, the animal lamb. That was all pointing towards the blood of Christ, and it's only His precious blood that can cleanse us from our sin. It was never about the blood of the animal. It was all about the blood of Christ. That's said so clearly in that First Peter passage and again in Hebrews 10, verse 4. And then we see the Lamb in the book of Revelation, your next blank. In the book of Revelation, we see the Lamb magnified. We see the Lamb magnified. Revelation 5, 9 through 14. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. For, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So just in case you're thinking that the Lamb is all about looking at what happened from Abel's sacrifice to Christ. And now the Lamb is only about us in the New Testament looking back to Christ. We will also look forward to seeing, at least in some degree, this Lamb being magnified in our future, in eternity future. And that's highlighted even further in the next blank. In the last chapter of the Bible, we see the Lamb glorified. Revelation 22, 1-5, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, a bright crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. So in the very end of the Bible, right, there's that river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Verse 5, And there will be no more night. They will have no need of light or lamp of the sun, for the Lord will be their light, and He will reign forever and ever. And so we understand there is a preeminent focus in our passage this morning on the Lamb. That today we would be wrong to just take it for granted the rich history, the rich present focus, and the rich future that all focuses on the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God is still an exhortation for each one of us today. And I appreciate again how J.C. Ryle emphasizes that. He writes, Let us take heed. That in all of our thoughts of Christ, we first think of Him as John the Baptist here represents Him. Let us serve Him faithfully as our Master. Let us obey Him loyally 
as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as of soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year that we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the rule of true Christian theology. We know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb who was slain. I wonder if you could say that today, that when you see the Lamb of God, that you see him as the Lamb of God that was slain for your sins. I wonder whether you coming to church today is just a story about some Old Testament things looped together, about some old covenant that's no longer needed, or do you see all of that pointing to the Lamb of God? Could you on this day see the Lamb with your spiritual eyes and acknowledge that he has died for your sin, that you could be saved because all of your works and all of your efforts and all of your effort has no ability to save you. It's only through the Lamb of God. And this is what we read in the second major point of the sermon. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. He continues on in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this word takes away means to lift up. To move from one place to another. It means to carry away or to remove. It is used a little over a hundred times in the New Testament. And in this context, it refers to a complete atonement of sin. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world by bearing it upon Himself. He allowed our guilt to be laid upon Him. And He carried it away like the scapegoat so that there would be none left. It is one of the many expressions which describes the great truth that Christ's death was a vicarious sacrifice for sin. He became our substitute. He took upon our sin. He was made sin for us. Our sins were imputed to Him. He was made a curse for us. He paid it in full so that we could be free. It's the Lamb of God that takes away. He removes our sin from us. And the question would rightly be asked on this verse, well, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for the sins of the world? Or did he die for the sins of the elect? And this is obviously the big debatable question about limited atonement. Is the blood of Christ for the whole world? Or is the blood of Christ only for his own? And so let me try to answer that very controversial question that gets a lot of late night discussions in this way. All right, your next blank. The blood of the lamb is sufficient for the sins of every person in the world. The blood of the lamb is sufficient for the sins of every person in the world. Now, there's a lot of understanding that should be focused on the word world, right? When we say he takes away the sins of the world. And we've talked about how that word world, which is the word cosmos, is, as far as we note, can be defined three different ways in the Gospel of John. It can refer to the physical world, like the world God created. It can refer to humanity in general, like all people in a general sense. Or it can refer to the evil system dominated by Satan. And most of the time when it's used by the author John, it's talking about the evil system. Just when you talk about that's worldly, that's of the world, we're talking about the evil system of Satan. But in this context, I believe that he's talking about 
the humanity of the world in general. So when he says that he takes away the sins of the world, it's a general reference that the, the blood of Christ is sufficient for the sins of every person in the world. Let me explain a little further, and I'll try to pull this all together, okay? So in John 3.16, the same usage of the world is used again, right? For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse is also implying that God's love for the world is in a general sense. Or in John 4, 42, and you'll have to turn to these and do a little study on your own when you have more time. But he says, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, a general reference in John 4, 42, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. In 1 John 2, 2, again we read, He is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then one last time that we see it used in 1 John 4, 14, is that he says that, that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, in all of those references that are listed for you in your outline, I think, again, it's in the general sense that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And there's a huge difference between being sufficient for the sins of every person in the world and being efficacious for the sins of every person in the world. And so your next blank says this, the blood of the Lamb is efficacious for the sins of those who repent and believe. And so while the blood of the Lamb is sufficient for all, it's only efficacious for those who repent and believe. Otherwise, you're going to declare yourself a universalist. If you say that God saves every individual in the world just because He's the Savior of the world, then you're negating all the texts to talk about the judgment of the Lord and to talk about the consequences of our sin and that the wages of our sin is death. And so there is a qualification by which that blood is applied to any given individual. In the book of John, it's the qualification of belief. It's the qualification of belief. John 3, 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. John 5, 24, and whoever believes in him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 40, it says that everyone who looks upon the son and believes in him. John eleven twenty five. whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And in John 20, 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so we see the qualification in all of these verses is to believe. Even though the blood of Christ is sufficient for the whole world, it's only efficacious, meaning it's only truly applied to and works its saving power in those who would repent and believe. You must believe in Christ who died for you. If you don't believe in him, you don't have the blood of Christ applied to your account. You must believe that he died for you, that he took your punishment on his body, on the cross, and therefore you are justified because your punishment was paid for by another. This reminds me of the concept of the whipping boy. Have you ever heard that term, the whipping boy? During the feudal times, royal families would have what were called whipping boys. A whipping boy is a boy of the same age, but not the same class in society as the prince or nobleman. 
For when a child was of high enough class, he was too important to be beaten by anyone other than his father. Fathers of noble families were frequently unavailable in the raising of their children, so something had to be done to punish the misbehaving child. Thus, the concept of the whipping boy was developed. The whipping boy would be a playmate to the young nobleman. They would grow up together and likely be close friends. When the nobleman youth acted out of turn or slacked in his studies, the whipping boy would be beaten in place of the young nobleman. This was a form of psychological indirect punishment. The whipping boy would serve as a sort of scapegoat for the young prince or nobleman. And when the noble boy did wrong, the whipping boy was punished in his place. If you are in Christ today, then Jesus is the whipping boy in your place. He took your discipline. He bore what should have been your pain. He took it all on his body on the cross so you and I could be forgiven. There's only one major difference between Jesus and the whipping boy. I guess there's other differences, but one major one. The whipping boy was forced to receive his punishment. Jesus chose to be the whipping boy for you. He delighted in taking the Father's wrath upon his back as the sacrificial lamb. He wasn't forced to be the son and to be the sacrifice. He volunteered and joyfully offered himself as a whipping boy in our place. So thank God that Christ willfully and joyfully took our place, for he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the third point that I want you to see this morning is this. Number three, Jesus is revealed by John the Baptist. Just a few moments to summarize this, but number the first sub-point here would be this. John the Baptist points to the superiority and eternality of Christ. We've already looked at some of these verses, but it says again, John the Baptist says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And so we see here, John continues to humble himself and point to Christ. He continues to say, it's not about me, it's not about my ministry, it's about Christ. And so we see there that he continues to point to Christ as being the one who it's all about. The second subpoint says this, John the Baptist baptizes so that Christ may be revealed. Look at verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now you might find that a little bit surprising. John the Baptist said, I did not know him. How could this be? They were cousins for crying out loud. You would think that maybe they spent time together playing and interacting as boys growing up, even though there's no record of that. And yet John the Baptist says he did not even know exactly who Jesus was. That is, he didn't know until one day when he was baptizing in the River Jordan. And while the Gospel of John does not record the actual event of the baptism, we do learn about it here in the next couple of verses. So your next blank says this, John the Baptist did not know Christ until the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he. All right? So apparently God the Father had given John the Baptist a clear sign that when he saw the Spirit descend like a dove and remain on Jesus, that this would be the Messiah. And that's exactly what happens according to Matthew's account, Matthew 3, 13 
through 16. I'll just read verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so notice how the Spirit descended and remained on Christ. In the Old Testament, we would see the Holy Spirit come, we would see the Holy Spirit go. We would see the Holy Spirit come, we would see Him go. Well, now that we're in the New Covenant, in the person of Christ, we see the Holy Spirit come and remain on the person of Christ. And it was at this event that John the Baptist's eyes were truly open to this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. This was the fulfillment of the sign. So Jesus was fully man and fully God, but he was also fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. And we see a beautiful picture of the triune God here in this baptism. Still, though, John's baptism was one only of preparation. Notice how he continues to emphasize, I'm only baptizing with water. He who comes after me is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And that's our next blank. John the Baptist teaches that Christ baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. There at the end of verse 33, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Every other baptism is just water. This is a baptism of regeneration and a filling of the Holy Spirit. Every born-again believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit at their conversion. This is about new life. This is about 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. This is what Titus writes about in Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people who have a lot of strong feelings about baptism. And there's a lot of people in evangelicals today who are wasting their time in controversy about water, to, water baptism while all along they're neglecting the baptism of the heart. Thousands more are content with a head knowledge of the Lamb of God who have never sought Him by faith, that their own sins would actually be taken away. Let us take heed that we ourselves have new hearts and we believe in the saving and the sanctification of our souls by the baptism of Christ. Do we think water baptism is important? Absolutely. It's an act of obedience. We teach at our church. It's an act of obedience. Your first act of faith as a believer to be immersed underwater. But so many people get lost in that discussion and forget about, our, have you truly been baptized by Christ? Does the Spirit of God live in you? Are, are your, is your old man done away with? Have you been made new? Because I would much rather you understand clearly the baptism of Christ than you would understand the baptism of John the Baptist or the mode of baptism that we sometimes argue about today. And this is what Christ came from for, verse 33 again, to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. One last point to make, and we'll be done. Number four, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Verse 34, and we have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And we see here that there is the Son of God is really just one of eight titles in this first chapter of John. He is the Word. He is the true light. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is Rabbi, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. You see all those listed there for you. And so this title, the Son of God, is emphasizing, your next blank, 
it's emphasizing, the Son of God emphasizes that Jesus alone shares in the same nature as the Father. So each title has a a particular emphasis, and this one would be the emphasis that to be the Son of God, you must bear the same nature and the same essence as the Father does, which is why all of these verses talk about how the Father and the Son are one. There's no difference in their divinity. There's no difference in their essence. If Jesus was not of the same nature of God, then he wouldn't be God. But he is. Jesus is of the same nature and the same essence of God. He is the Son of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was to preach in the Crystal Palace in London. So he went with a friend to try the acoustics of the building the evening before the day for which the meeting was scheduled. He arranged that he should speak from the rostrum, which would have been like the pulpit there in that church, and his friend should stand in one or two places near the rear of the building and listen. Those were the days, obviously, before loudspeakers had been invented. And so mounting the rostrum, the great preacher shouted the words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was repeated several times so that its audibility could be tested in various parts of the palace. And then they left, satisfied that Spurgeon's voice could be heard all over the vast building. But they had not noticed that a workman was engaged in completing some repairs to the roof. He heard the text and went home later under deep conviction of sin. And as a result of the plain quotation of the passage that we're looking at this morning, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That workman was converted. He came to Christ with the simple statement of Spurgeon, of John the Baptist, repeating time and time again, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May the same thing happen to you today if you don't know Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're here today, maybe you know a lot about church and you know a lot about Christ, but you've never really seen because it can only be revealed to you by the sovereignty of God that this morning your eyes would be opened to see the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. That you would no longer try to accomplish it by some means of your own, some cleansing of your own, some amount of good works that you would do to somehow cover up the sin of your past. There's no other way other than acknowledging the Lamb of God. Why would you look for any other? Why would you try any other way? This morning, you have the opportunity to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just a couple of short questions. You can think on them more later. How does seeing the Lamb of God through Scripture make you want to worship Him more fervently? I pray that maybe this afternoon you would take some time maybe sometime this week, and work through those ten pictures of the Lamb of God, and it would cause you to want to fall on your knees and to worship our risen Christ. Number two, how does the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb, how was the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb first revealed to you? And how are you responding to that truth today? My prayer would be that this sermon on this day would renew a passion in your heart to remember that first day that you saw the Lamb, that first day that you saw His blood that was spilt for your sin, and that you came to that knowledge of Christ, and you would think about that 
and you would dwell on that and you wouldn't take for granted today this statement that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And then our last question this morning, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And if so, how is that impacting your life? If you really have been baptized into Christ, regenerated by His sacrifice, what does that look like and how is that impacting your life today on a daily basis? Remember, the atonement of the blood was applied to the ear, to the hands, and to the feet. And may it so impact our service and our worship of our Lord this very day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to think some about the Lamb of God and His sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And now as we prepare our hearts for communion today, God, we want to just thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for its sufficiency. Thank you for its efficacious work in the hearts of those that would repent and believe. I call all today, God, that are under the sound of my voice, would come to you this day, that you would no longer reject them, but receive them and adopt them into your family through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency and the efficacy of the sacrifice that was made in the Lamb of God. May we behold him today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.